0: The Book of Romans really is uh, one of the most packed uh, and detailed descriptions, Uh, not one of the most, it is the most packed and detailed description of the gospel in the Bible. Um, And so, Eleanor, as you were saying, um, when you first became a Christian, you were recommended to study the Book of Romans and to come back with questions and so forth. Perfect book to go to. Now, it is long. It is involved. We are not going to be covering all of that, but I wanted you to at least appreciate how right at the center of these 16 chapters occurs chapter 8, which is all about the Spirit of God interacting with the people of God in the midst of this world as we await the new creation. So chapter 8 is next week. We're going to work up to it this morning. So I see you turning there quick. I actually want you to be at the end of Romans chapter 2. Because we really need to get the setting of this to settle down in the center of this book is just a mistake. You gotta, you gotta get the ramp up to it because there's so many different things as you can appreciate, I'm sure. Uh, A two part introduction. The first part spent an entire introduction just on the first four chapters, which really is uh, the meat of bringing us to an end of ourselves. Uh, In fact, if you really want to see it, look right over the, uh, right over the page in chapter three. look at verses 19 and 20 this is where it kind of sums up the first three chapters in in two sentences uh look at romans 3 verses 19 and 20 after he quotes all over the old testament from seven different locations all about how there's not a single righteous person anywhere in all the people of the world he says in verse 19 and 20 now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law only comes knowledge of sin. That is showing us the reality of why God used the law in the first place. And so this idea that we can return back to rules and then present ourselves to God as good people will never work because the law was not designed to do that. The law was... Um, the best metaphor I've ever heard for the law of God is as a mirror. It shows you who you are by showing you who God is by contrast. Right? Imagine, imagine if you will, to put it in our language: uh, you must be perfect. You must be. Um, you must be meek in all places. You must be holy. You must be righteous. You must love at all times the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And lest you think I'm making up those rules, literally Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, at the very close of Matthew 5, where he says, you must be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. And he's just repurposing Leviticus 11. You must be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. We have to be not just good people, we have to be godlike. And the law is there to show us we have no hope of doing this. None. Even if we can muster up for one act to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, what are we to expect in the next minute? We'll love ourselves more than God. Or things in the created realm. Or we will love even our neighbor more than God, which is also a mixing up of the commandments. We will will love ourselves more than our neighbor. But again, the problem, as he was pointing out, that is spelled out in the introduction of Romans is anytime we love a created thing over the creator, we mess up the entire gospel. Every time we put our trust in something that's created, including ourselves, over trust in Christ, we mess up the gospel. We mess up the preaching of it, we mess up evangelism. We will actually get everything upside down, every single thing. We will have our identity mixed up because our identity, remember, we talked about this a month ago. Um, uh, our cultural crisis of identity right now. Uh, Everything that's going on right now is trying to focus on created things rather than grounding our identity as images of God and images of Christ being formed after that. Those are focusing our identity on something not created. That That is what the whole concept of identity in the scripture is about. Everything else is part of the creation. Roles, desires, good or bad, these can't be our identities because it'll mean that our focus moves from heaven only to earth. And if our focus goes to earth, we will eventually find ourselves leaving God aside and focusing only on self. The book of Romans is here to torpedo that concept in ourselves. He spends three chapters showing us uh, in four different parts, and I'll just run you through them really quick. It doesn't matter if you're born into a culture that's never had the word of God. You have the moral code inside of you. You know just from looking out at nature, God's eternal power is divine nature. That's chapter one. So you are without excuse. Opening to chapter two, even if you didn't pay attention to that, you should have paid attention to the moral code within you. You know it's wrong to murder. You know it's wrong to steal. That's not acceptable. You say, okay, well, how about, how about this? How about those who receive the written code? Those who receive the law of God. They know the word of God, but see, they're just as sinful. In fact, more so because every time we hear the law, what does our sinful heart do? We break it. In fact, we learn from the law new ways to break the law. This is exactly his argument in chapter 7 where he says, if the law didn't tell me not to covet, I never would have coveted. But as soon as I heard the commandment, do not covet, I found covetousness all throughout my heart. And then he just calls himself a wretched man. this this is who we are outside of Christ. We have no hope of this. And he says, well, what about those who teach the law to others? I bet those are the top of the heap, best of the best, everything. And that's where we find ourselves at the close of chapter 2. What about those who not only have the law of God, but teach it and then do the commandments? What about the ones who don't just know what the commandments of God are? We're at the end of chapter 2 not just those who know the commandment, but they seek to follow the law of God with all their heart. What kind of hope do you think they have? What if you wake up every single morning and you read all 613 laws of the Mosaic Code? And you go. I'm going to write these, just like Deuteronomy six says, on my doorposts. On, I'm going to hang them in front of my eyes. I'm going to put little, and they actually did this. Put little promises of God and rules in little leather boxes. Strap them to my arms. I mean, this is what Jesus was talking to about the Pharisees. They they make these boxes big. I have all the laws with me. I have all the hope with me. I'm my tassels long. Uh, if God says only walk a thousand uh, steps on the Sabbath, I'm only going to walk 500. Like. I'm going to super follow the laws. Yep, yes ma'am. No, no, the rosary comes from somewhere else entirely and hundreds of years into the future from that. So uh, if, if you mean it comes from non-scriptural sources, yes. <laughs> it has nothing to do with actually following Christ. It has to do with... You know what? That's a good idea for a deep dive in church history. Where does the rosary come from? Most people will probably be surprised this is the actual origin. It's not from Jewish prayer, uh, prayer uh, leather straps, though. It is uh, much worse. Anyway, we'll get to that sometime. So he talks about, okay, what about, what, so the law says circumcision. I know it says circumcision, and then I actually carry that out. I'm circumcised, my sons are circumcised, and everything's great, right? Well, Romans chapter 2, verse 25. Here's where we start getting introduced to the power of the Spirit. Circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, (laughs) circumcision becomes uncircumcision. James says this in just the most beautiful way. He says, if you think that you have, I'm paraphrasing him here between chapters 1 and 2, he says, if you think that you have it covered because you didn't commit adultery, but then you went out and murdered somebody. He says, but the same person who commanded you not to murder also said, do not commit adultery. You're not guilty of one law. In breaking one law, you're guilty of it all. So you can't just pick and choose and go, "Um, God, uh, not only am I better than this person over here, I'm better than I used to be. And God's like, did you break one? One law, anywhere. Well, yeah, I'm human. That's the problem circumcision will actually become uncircumcision. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised then actually keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Let's talk about a man who could follow every piece of the law, every tiny thing everywhere. Wouldn't that count as being part of the covenant people of God? any reasons he says then he who is physically circumcised physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn those who have the written code here he's speaking of Jews who actually have the old testament and are circumcised but then break the law he's like the only way circumcision makes any sense is if you can be perfect on your own as a follow up <laughs> so raise your hands who has done that and paul says no nah. He says, you want to know what a real identity of somebody who is in the covenant of God is? Look at verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. This goes back even to the Torah, where the whole point was it was a signifier of a circumcised heart. It's not about the outward occurrence. Same with baptism. This is why neither circumcision or baptism can actually save us. They are signifiers of a greater thing. Baptism, we're going to have several baptisms this afternoon. Baptism is not saving or washing anybody. It is signifying that they have been saved and washed. Same with circumcision. These things do not actually save us. In fact, the book of Galatians is written to absolutely destroy the concept that circumcision can save you. He says, you want to know who a real Jew is? You want to know who a real follower of God is? Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by whose power? By the Spirit. No human ability here. Not by the letter. The law cannot bring a new heart. See, this doesn't mean that the law is bad. The law is good. The law is marvelous. I I taught all the way through the book of Leviticus once. It was one of the most rewarding things I have ever taught through. But it cannot change our heart. Any of you who have ever raised kids know that giving them rules and parameters does not make them want to follow it. We are no different. We are no different. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait, don't break the vase? Where's the vase? (laughs) That's how it works. And and the law of God works the exact same way. And so Paul is addressing this reality, this thing that we've witnessed in ourselves. And he goes through and describes all of this. And then he sums it up, verse nine in the next chapter. He was like, he talks about this, you know, Jews do have an advantage. They were given the written code. You know, they were given the promises to caretake and all these types of things. But that also doesn't perfect them in any way. And so he pulls from the entire Old Testament corpus, Psalms, Genesis, Torah, wisdom literature, he pulls from all of them and watch all of these quotes because these are from all over the place. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And he will, it is a drumbeat. No, 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 no. It happens so many times here. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, watch this series of quotations. there is no fear of God before their eyes. Every single person under heaven. So why would we ever seek a solution in mankind or in ourselves? To seek a solution in a created being would undermine the gospel to the nth degree. This is why idolatry is destructive because you can only become like what you worship, which means if you You are worshiping something created by human hands. You will never, ever worship God. Because idols are much easier for us to worship. And much easier for us to attain. Imagine, if you will, this is how cults start. Say you have a very um, charismatic leader. Everyone likes their personality. Everyone likes to follow them. Their standard is not going to be higher than God's standard. They're going to have a lower standard. They're going to have a list of favorite things that they would prefer you follow. It's going to be much easier than following the law of God. I promise. It's only going to be like five or six things that they harp on all the time, and your goal is to make them happy. That's how cults get started. And when you follow those rules, they'll go, great, I'm happy, you're happy, codependent, unrighteousness. Isn't it marvelous? Paul says, there is nothing under heaven, no being under heaven that is outside of this accountability. He says in verse 20, it's the summation statement of the entire opening. By works of the law, not a single human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the point. To show us. It's a mirror. It shows us who God is and who we aren't. And then just the most marvelous word in the entire Bible. My personal favorite word. I have favorite verses. I have favorite chapters. A lot of those are in Romans. My favorite word is the first word in chapter 3, verse 21. But it's just the most perfectly placed conjunction. Because if the book of Romans stopped at Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it would be perfectly just and marvelous and all of us would be going to hell to God's glory. And there would be nothing wrong with that plan. But, my favorite word in the Bible right there, but now the righteousness, not of man, but of God, has been manifested, it has been shown, it has been displayed apart from the law, over here, in the corner where nobody was looking for it manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to this it's consistent with everything that came before it the law and the prophets is all the scriptures genesis through the way we lay it out malachi the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness of god that's been manifested apart from us the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all who believe for there is no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the only way of righteousness. We can't go to God direct. It doesn't work like that. We can't even worship God direct. It doesn't work like that. What does he say first? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by what? What? They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, satisfaction, by his blood to be received by faith. We are not justified by faith. I want to make this distinction because it's absolutely absolutely central. We are justified by grace that comes to us through faith. A lot of people try to say the shorthand, we are justified by faith. That again puts the focus on us and our faith. It's not us. We are justified by his grace and it is received. Faith is just an empty, open hand receiving grace. That's it. Because otherwise, again, the focus will come back to us. Look at my great faith. And we will actually trust in how good our faith is because we always want to put ourselves into the center of the gospel again. And he comes back and goes, Nope! It is by grace of God, gifted to us, it is through faith. And that's exactly how Ephesians 2 actually structures that, on purpose. Because of his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. Showing God's righteousness so that we may look for salvation in the right place. And it's not going to be inside us. It's going to be in Christ. Because that's where it's manifested. Now, Upon salvation, go ahead and go up to chapter 5. Upon salvation, there's something drastic that happens. We no longer have this war between us and God. Now we have this war inside us against us. You know that change that happened? We used to be enemies of God. We knew that we were deserving of the wrath of God. We knew that we could not accomplish the law of God, yet we found salvation in Christ. And all of a sudden, the war moved from between us and God to between us and our old self. And now that war that used to be between us and God is now just a new nature inside us wrestling with our old nature. So he introduces this concept now. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That war is over. Now we have something else entirely. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering will produce endurance and endurance will produce character and character produces hope. And hope, this hope, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are not left alone to follow Christ on our own steam. Don't you find it fascinating that the Spirit of God was given only when Christ returned to heaven? Spirit of God, as we have been discussing all along, was not given in wholesale way before Acts chapter 2. When we were there, we kind of wrestled with the idea of why is it that God didn't do this? Like back in Genesis, wouldn't that have made everything just so much, here's my Americanism showing for, efficient? Wouldn't that have done so? What was the problem? Because Adam and Eve had defied him, and at that point, he left man on his own. Um, in a way, didn't they have the Holy Spirit in the Garden of Eden? So uh, as, as for that, there's no statement in scripture about the Holy Spirit's interaction after Genesis 1-2 until we get all the way to Genesis 6, where God actually says he intentionally pulls his spirit from mankind, uh, which is a really f- frightening thing to say. Um, but he does not clarify what he meant by that. All it seems to maybe be connected to is the breath of life. And he's like, I'm going to kill them all because the flood comes next. There may also just be that the Holy Spirit was, as he does today, even amongst unbelievers, uh, hold back the flood of sin. And then he just removed it. And the world before the flood became sinful beyond measure, um, which we also see in the text. So there are two main thoughts to that. As far as for uh, after the flood, it is without dispute. The Spirit of God was not given a wholesale at all. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we went through every reference, and you're only talking about this person, and then a hundred years later, that person, and then a few hundred years later, that person. It's very seldom and very unusual, and it's meant to just depict what was to come. But now, after Acts 2, and then the rollout of the Holy Spirit throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world, now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will receive his Spirit, which is why he's speaking to a Gentile church in Rome, in Italy, way far away from Jerusalem, and... Everyone there has the Spirit of God. And he's speaking to them and saying, look, this connects to the way we live our lives because the Christian life is not possible to be lived without the Spirit of God. That has to be deeply grasped, right? If we did not have the Spirit of God, we would not have this wrestle back and forth. We would not have a new nature. We would not have justification in the way that we are familiar with it. We would not have that kind of resonance with the Word of God that we actually have. Now, the Word of God still has power, and it's able to do things even in unbelieving hearts. It certainly can do so in the Old Covenant and believing hearts. But we have in the New Covenant, in the church age, the Spirit of God living amongst his people as his temple. It is completely different than the Old Covenant. And what, what Paul is spelling out here is saying, Not only is the church given a task that she is not fit to meet outside the enablement of the Holy Spirit, so is the individual Christian. You can't live the Christian life without the Spirit of God. You cannot follow the law as a fulfilled law in joy without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the fruit of the Spirit of God. Remember we saw in Galatians Look at all those things that come from the Spirit of God that are just definitional about the Christian life. Love, and joy, and peace, and patience. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't have these things. We don't. We would have them just like everyone else has them, fleeting whispers of similar virtues. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is given to the people of the church as they focus on Christ and his word. We don't receive it any other way. We don't receive it by practicing our good works to be seen in front of other people. We actually lose it when we do that because we start following the Lord for the sake of recognition that we get from other people. We don't want to do that. We want to follow the Lord on his terms because of the love he has given us in our hearts. And what does he say here? He says the same thing, verse 5 in chapter 5, hope does not put us to shame. This, this outcome of suffering, this wonderful outcome of suffering, he says, why does it not put us to shame? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It is God's love, God's power, and God's virtue. Notice he doesn't connect anything here in the Christian life with our practicing action so that we make it arise out of dead flesh. We can't do that. Look at that valley of dry bones that Ezekiel was preaching to. Which of those bones said, you know what I want to do today? I really, really want to listen to the word of God and be raised and become a new army. Mm -hmm. What? No. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about Lazarus raising from the dead. You know what Lazarus wasn't doing in the tomb? Mm -hmm. Besides smelling good? Waiting to be resurrected. He was not sitting there going, boy, I tell you. If only Jesus would say something, these legs would get right on up and I'd walk right on out of this tomb, no problem. He wasn't thinking that. He was dead. In trespasses and sins is the comparison to who we were. Now, what we have in our life is owed to who? Not us. Not our church. Not one another. Those are created things. It is owed to God. All credit goes to him. And Paul is just removing from us just sequentially every single hope we have in self he says let me use me as the chief example go to chapter seven if ever you had a pride about how good uh you are as a christian um and are lying to yourself about how much sin you have overcome and uh, you don't sin anymore, just read chapter 7 and let it just destroy you bit piece by piece. Because if, if, you have, if you ever look at other Christians and go, man, they are so much more sinful than me. It's a good thing God has me around. Um, you should read Romans 7 just about every night before you go to bed so that you wake up humble. Let's read the whole chapter and focus on these references to the Holy Spirit as we prepare to go to Romans 8, which is where we will sit for the entirety of next week. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, obviously vice versa, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage, it's done. That's why we say till death do us part, right? Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, she's not an adulteress, right? So he's just talking about the temporality of the law. Okay. Likewise, uh-oh. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God, for while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members. That's that's his word for like hands and feet and eyes. What we do. To bear fruit for death. But now, as Christians, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way. It doesn't mean that we ignore the law. It means that we serve in a brand new way the way of the Spirit and of the old way of the written code. Now, hang on a second. What's he talking about? So many Christians, so many Christians care nothing for the Old Testament. And Paul is here saying, you can't do that. This is not that we serve in a new way by living however we want. It says we serve in a new way The way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And what he's saying here is, we are not attempting to follow the law in our own ability. If we are, that our hope is not found in Christ. Our our only hope is going to be that Christ fulfilled the law in our place. That's it. That's where the righteousness of God is. And through him, I receive the righteousness of God. It's my only hope. He says, it doesn't just turn around. And go, oh, you found righteousness in Christ? Okay, go back to finding your own righteousness again. He's like, no, that's the exact opposite. This is the nice way of putting it. If you want the mean way of putting it, you go to Galatians chapter 3 where he calls everyone stupid for trying to do that. He was like, are you so stupid that what began by faith now you complete by your own works? <laughs> he was like, that, that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. How could you imagine that that would be the way of this? That's like saying, Christ is everything, except the stuff over here that I can do. I got this covered. He's like, no, 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 you're missing it. You don't have it covered. You don't have that. Christ is everything. What does he say? We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way. Not that we do not pursue the law. We certainly do. But now we do it because we love the stuff of life. We don't cease murdering people. Let me use extreme examples just to illustrate it. We don't cease murdering people because we're trying to earn our way into heaven. We we already have a relationship with God. We don't like to murder people because we are now connected with the life himself and we respect life. And now we know that that law is fulfilled, but now we get to follow it with good reason and with no fear of reprisal. That's just true for every single law. Why is it we love our neighbors now? It's not so that we can show off how great we are. We love them because we realize Christ loved me and I didn't deserve it. Why do we forgive one another? By the way, these are all limited to the church. I want to be really clear about this. This is not that we just go out and forgive everyone everywhere and we love everyone everywhere. These are intra-church relationships. Those relationships outside the church have their own passages. He's talking about inside the church. Why do we love one another? Is it because we agree on everything? Have the same ethnicity? Have the same background? Culture? Nation? Language? Tongue? People? Nope. No. We love one another because Christ has loved each of us. That's it. doesn't matter how similar we are, how different we are. In fact, one would say it's easier to see Christ in the midst of Christians who are different from one another than it is to see him when we hold all things together. Let me put it this way. There's a Russian-Ukrainian Baptist church in Binghamton. Today, one of Sophie's best friends attends there. What things do you think they have to work through right now? And do you think that their hope can be centered in anything but Christ right now, while their two nations are at war? Nope. Hopefully. Well, doesn't it become a litmus test? Do we actually have something beyond what we were born into in this world? And the answer is, yes, they do. And it's not just a shared history way back in the past somewhere. It's we hold Christ in common regardless of our countries. They are able to see Christ very clearly right now. Now, that does not come without suffering, a great deal of it. There are several of them that are married, and they have family in both countries that are fighting each other. That's tough stuff to work through. Very tough. I don't want to push that down at all. I am saying, though, the only way to work through that is in the church of Christ. Because everything else will be sinking sand, as he promises. Are we to look at the law then and say, you know, oh, you know what? The law can't do this. The law couldn't bring this about. Because you can't just tell people whose nations are at war together, just get along. (laughs) <laughs> what if God, was that was all he was doing to the church? Just get along. That's it. End of story. You know, reach down into your—you know—into the depths of your soul and find out a way to get along. Everyone's just going to give up. He says, does that mean the law is sin? Does that mean the law is bad because it failed to do these things? Watch what he says. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Ah. Uh, you know, I, I love these English translations. They're so mild. By no means. That's not what he's writing here. Uh, it is our equivalent to, are you kidding me? It's, that's lunacy. Why would you even say something like that? You think the law is sin? That's lunacy. You can actually write that. (laughs) It doesn't actually truly mean that, but semantically, it sounds the same. That's nuts. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet but sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead, dormant. I was once alive apart from the law. Everything was great. But then the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. This is just a great summation statement. The very commandment that promised life. This is such an important concept. Do this and you will live. Don't do this or you will die. Do this and you will live. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. He almost talks about sin as this alter ego of himself. It's a remarkable way to talk. He says, but then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It was like, so I don't understand. If the law is so good, why? Why? Why didn't it work? Why can't God just tell us the right things to do and everything works out great? So, and we, because we always like to blame someone else. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. It's never our fault. We're the great ones. He's like, so the question comes up then, well, if the law didn't save me, it must be the law's fault. And he's like, no, 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 no. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Are you kidding me? That's lunacy. Same thing again. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Not only is the law a mirror, it's a mirror that makes me more sinful. Not only can the law not bring sinlessness in my life, it actually causes sin to abound. Now, if you've ever been a teenager and you had access to a mirror and you start judging yourself based on your appearance, does that make you think you are more attractive or less? How does it work? Our perception of ourself gets less and less and less. That's what the law is meant to do. The more we learn about God, the more we learn that he is our only hope and we have nothing the more we appreciate his holiness and his transcendence, the more we appreciate his imminence, his closeness, and his righteousness. It, it, it's, such, it's such, in order to actually do well, we have to not put any hope in our ability to do well. It's a remarkable thing. It's why the gospel is not something a human mind would ever make up. Because every false religion tells you, "Here's the right rules, and you can do better, and you can present yourself to God." Here, scriptures say, "No, you can't." The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Verse eleven for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. And so, the law is holy, and commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Of course not. It was sin. Sin brought death. It produced death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We know that the law is spiritual, and here he switches to the present tense, Christian. Verses one through fourteen were all the or one through thirteen were all past tense. Now he switches to the present tense as a Christian. So that was his experience before salvation, the law's hopelessness in bringing life. It just produced death, and that's it. Covetousness only showed up when the law said, don't covet. It was like, I I just kept learning to do more wrong. And verse 14, now he switches to the present. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. Watch this war now. Instead of between him and God, it goes between him and himself. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but the very thing I now hate, I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that still dwells within me. He, again, speaks of this almost as like it is an alter ego now in him, wrestling back and forth. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Christian, can you understand this? I aim for something far beyond what I'm capable of. And here's what Paul says it straight out. I want for the good. I want for this. The spirit is willing. But how weak is this flesh that's still wrapping around me? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's not my identity anymore, though it is my actions, often enough. Hence the importance of confession and repentance in the life of a believer. Keep going. Ah. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Just right there. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, I want to be in a state where what I want is what is accomplished, and I want for the righteousness of God, and yet I see in my hands, in my feet, in my eyes, and in my ears a weakness that I cannot get away from. He even calls himself a wretched man for that. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't not answer the question. He does answer the question with great fervor. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And, And the worst chapter division in the whole of Scripture is right here. There's no break in thought. Verse 1, chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's where we'll start next week. Because what he is going to pull out of this is to say, if you have any hope in what your hands and what your feet can do, you're going to find yourself absolutely despondent in the Christian life. Your hope is even after walking with Christ for decades, should be Christ and nothing else. Because through him, the spirit of life has set us free. If you want to go back to the law of sin and death and try to accomplish it on your own merit, good luck, it ain't gonna work. It'll just bring despair upon despair. But if we want grace upon grace, we will see that even though sin may indeed reside still in our members, in our hands, our feet, and our, even our mind at times, There is no condemnation, not because it's not wrong. There is no condemnation because we already have the righteousness of God. And he will spell this out connected to the Spirit of God in one of the most magnificent chapters about the Spirit of God, and that is Romans 8. We will be there next week. The entire chapter is about the Spirit of God. I want questions or points of clarity uh, before we close because I don't want any of that to go unheeded or missed uh, if there is any need out there for it. Any questions or clarity. Before we put a pause button and pin it right there. Anyone want to say thanks to God for that? My word. Let's do so. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this. What what a tremendous promise is given to us in Christ. Not that we can be saved and now it's up to us to keep it and to live out that no, but that we can be saved and sanctified by your spirit as you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you that we cannot take credit for these things. We pray that that kind of pride is kept far from us. That instead we would give you all the honor and glory, for you know we know you do not share your glory with another. We thank you, Father, for your promises that constantly work in us hope and patience for the world to come. We pray that work its way into our hearts even this morning. We pray it in your Son's name. Amen.